What's up? Today's episode of the Ryan Rosillo Podcast on the Ringer Podcast Network is brought to you by State Farm. Just like basketball, the game of life is unpredictable. Talk to a State Farm agent and get a teammate who can help you navigate the unexpected. Um, unexpected. Give me something unexpected. Kyle, you got anything? You got anything unexpected as of right now? Uh, I still haven't finished Tiger King. That's unexpected. One episode That's surprising. Left. You One bus- episode what are you, left. busy? What's no, the holdup? Uh, you know, it's like video games. I actually am busy. You guys are keeping me busy, so... All these drafts. Yeah, actually, yes, yes, that is uh, that is fair to, to to very fair. It's it's more than just fair. It's very fair that you're busy. Um, I've been busier this the last I don't know ten days or so than than I've had other stretches. Um, at least not at night, you know, just working on other things, but not watching games. So anyway, that's what we have right there. It's unexpected that Kyle has not finished Tiger. One episode left, though. One. Episode. It was late. I just wanted to be wow. aware of it. You know, I didn't want to fall asleep during it. So I got one left. I'm going to finish it up tonight. I like that. Yeah, that's when I know I care about a show because when I'm putting it on late and I go, okay, wait a minute. I'm about to, the eyes are getting a little heavy here. So let me, let me just go into something else I already know or I don't care that much about or I know it's going to be slow. You know what yeah, I can't stand watch? Stand up is my fall asleep. It's a very good, oh, stand up comedians is how you fall asleep. Because you don't have to open your eyes. That's weird. I find that weird, but I think it's, I think you're right. Cause you can't fall asleep to die hard. Yeah. Give it a shot. You know? Yeah. That's uh that's a good idea. Maybe I'll peruse. I always wonder if you're a stand-up comedian and you don't have a special on Netflix, can you go outside, but now you don't have to worry about it. See, I'm writing material. <laughs> I'm writing material right now. Bang. Get a teammate who can help you navigate the unexpected. Talk to a state farm agent today. Today's plan, Bill Lawrence, big time. And I can't emphasize that enough. Big time showrunner, producer, creator, writer, director of television. He was on Friends the first season. I think he was 25. I have a very close mutual friend with him, Bill Callahan, who was the showrunner on Scrubs for Bill Lawrence, who I've known since I was back in high school in Martha's Vineyard. Um, he used to spend some summers down there. Callie's big time athlete, invited me to this pickup basketball game that's kind of legendary with all these, these actors and writers and directors and stuff. I played in it once. I did get the scattering report back from my agent that I was, it was said that I could tell he used to be pretty good. <laughs> that was not what I wanted to hear, but probably accurate. Uh, I don't know if I'll bring that up with Bill because we don't know each other that well yet. So he created, co-created Spin City, created Scrubs, Cougar Town, um, Undateable, Whiskey Cavalier. He's got a million things going on and, uh, we're going to talk with him about the business, his career, and all that kind of stuff. Get some friend stories in there as well. Before I do anything on today's pod, I'm going to start a new segment that I may get bored of, which I've even talked about before because I thought it'd be a good video series, but it would also... Simmons was kind of like, I don't know if you should do that. And he's probably right because if I do something called Worst Take, which I think is funny because it rhymes, and that's pretty much all the titles need to do is sort of just rhyme, sound like something... But if you just did a segment every week, a video thing, and it's not even making fun of first take, it's just anyone that has something to say that's really stupid that week. And he was like, are you really just going to call out all of your colleagues? Like, I don't even like half of them. So why, why would I care? And if you say something stupid, you say something stupid and it's there for everyone else to consume. So just go ahead and do it. He's like, I'm going to steer you. Away. I can always tell when Bill, it's a no from Bill because he thinks he's helping me. And in this case, he's right because I would just end up building up a ton of enemies. Um, he'd be like, you know, I'm going to steer you away from that idea. It's like, okay, okay. So I guess what I'm saying is that now I'm going to do it anyway on the podcast because there are takes and certainly during this time 
where I think some people are really going to start pushing the boundaries here a little bit. And there are times, too, where I know guys are doing it just for the attention. But I do think there are times guys just have opinions that are wrong. And that's okay. Like, we can have opinions. Although the defense of an opinion shouldn't be, hey, I can't be wrong. It's my opinion. Okay, well, if you think Pete Myers is better than Mike Jordan and you go, hey, that's my opinion, it doesn't mean you're you're in the clear, okay? Um, <laughs> what are we doing here if those are the rules? So Rick Buecher on this week's Worst Take, first installment. I don't know that I'll do it every week. I'll probably get bored with it in a couple of weeks. I like Rick. I've always liked Rick. I don't know him that well now. I've been on his radio show during Super Bowl Row stuff. He was awesome as a guest. I loved having him on the radio show. And he was always great when he went around with Bill. Like he was, I think, one of Bill's, uh, Bill's best basketball podcast guests. But he's been with Fox. He's been on fire now for a little while. And though Buker had this weird thing with me where he was, you know how like when a guy is dating somebody, and guys do this, like any girl that's better looking than the guy, and it's like, mm, wonder how much money his dad has. Uh, I was dating somebody that, yes, a fine above the rim, out kicking whatever. But he was obsessive about it. He was weird. Like, he came on a podcast with me once and was like, and by the way, the idea that you're dating her, oh, my God. And I was like, okay, you're blatantly telling me you find me repulsive. I got it. And, like, not even a good enough personality to carry my, in your opinion, average attractiveness. Thanks. <laughs> so, I don't know. That was kind of a weird side rant. So, let's get to the meat of what this whole point is, because that wasn't his worst take. Although, maybe. Anyway. He was on with Marcellus and Whitlock, and he was talking about this season and potentially how it could be canceled, and then he got to LeBron. And he was saying this about LeBron. So this is Buker's quote, meaning LeBron here. Quote, I don't want to play in the playoffs when I know I'm going to be at a disadvantage. Rick's general premise, if you find the cut, is that he feels like if the season's canceled, LeBron will secretly be happier because he won't have to face another playoff failure. Now, let me preface this and why I think this is actually his genuine feeling as opposed to being disingenuous for attention, even though I'm giving it to him right now, is that he's always been anti-LeBron because he's been such a pro-Kobe guy. And this has been going on 10 plus years. And Rick Buecher, classic Rick Buecher, came on my radio show and called LeBron a glue guy. And I lost it. Like we had that soundbite going forever where I just go like, glue guy? I'm incredulous. So. Let's examine his position on this theory that LeBron would prefer the season doesn't start up again so he can avoid a playoff L. He used the fans quote that happened immediately when none of us really knew what the hell was going on with this virus, where LeBron was like, look, I do it for the fans. Like, I don't want to play in any games that aren't with fans. I honestly think LeBron was just trying to do something there that he thought fans would like to hear. And it was so early in the process, he didn't even really know what he was saying. I certainly didn't understand the magnitude of what it meant. And as everyone's scrambling to try to figure out their own revenue, whether it's owners, which is okay to try to figure out a way to not lose all of your revenue, believe it or not, and players who would still like to not lose 25 plus percent of their annual salary and TV partners that would love to not pay for rights to this stuff, as you're seeing that start to circulate, like who's going to keep paying these leagues, but then they would also love to have something to put on so that the vendors that have paid for the advertising don't ask for all these make goods that you have to give back to these ad companies when a series goes four games instead of seven games. Like all of this stuff is connected. So I don't think, despite the seriousness and scariness of what we're going through right now, I don't think it's necessarily wrong to try to figure out some way to salvage your business. It's essentially restaurants doing takeout all the time and emailing you their menus, hoping you'll do some takeout. And by the way, if you can, do some takeout, take care of some of your local restaurants. 
So I don't have a problem with any of that stuff. But LeBron was simply, I wouldn't call it pandering. He was just doing the thing. He was like, hey, I don't want to play without any fans in there because fans are part of this. And then once he learned more and once all of us learned more, he kind of corrected. was like, all right, you know, I didn't really understand what was going on. And now we do. So that is not, I think, good evidence to prove that LeBron was going, well, hey, if no fans, we should just not even play because I don't want to take a playoff L. And that was how it was connected. Um, one thing we do with athletes, we don't give them enough credit about what they're able to do physically. I know that sounds weird, but we kind of overrate their toughness and at the same time underrate what it is that these guys do. There's a reason why they're built the way they are and are as physical and as impressive and why we pay to watch it. It's not just the ball going through a hoop or a guy scoring a touchdown. We see these plays where a guy gets absolutely clobbered in football, and the announcers always act surprised when the guy gets up. And honestly, most of them always get up because that's what they are. They're special. They're different than us. They're wired differently than us, and that's why uh, they are at the top 1% of their field. That's why everybody growing up, like you're probably not going to be them. So when I hear part of Buecher's argument that LeBron at 35, like shutting it down for a couple months and having to restart that engine, yes, I can imagine it'd be challenging but I don't think it's impossible. I don't think it would be impossible for him to come all the way back. So I think that that's being overstated. And the final part of this whole thing, as Buecher said, quote, LeBron looks much better if there is no resumption of the regular season. Meaning, as he expanded on this, that, oh, well, hey, there were no playoffs, but that Lakers team was a one seed, and you know he, he may have gotten another MVP, that somehow he'll be granted credit historically because they were a one seed in L.A.? No way doesn't work that way this stuff will be forgotten in a couple of years other than Lakers fans and pro LeBron people maybe bringing it up from time to time but the general basketball public years removed when LeBron is inducted into the Hall of Fame they're not going to say LeBron James six-time all-star four-time MVP had the Lakers in first place in the West in 2020 three times finals MVP 12 all NBA first team selections eight straight finals they're not going to do that. Nobody's going to do that. Nobody's going to round up and say, you know what? He really deserved four in a season that no playoff games were actually played. So if you want to knock LeBron for little things, the hand cast after the finals games with the Warriors was weird. You can go ahead and do it. But as I always remind everybody, who in your life has ever gotten your 100% approval rating? The answer is likely zero, unless it's a I don't even even say a newborn, because let's be honest, there's probably some nights you're like, oh, this sucks, actually. I probably could have put this off another couple years. I just think it's, I just disagree with the opinion. And I don't actually think it was disingenuous, because I think LeBron is somebody that Buecher has not been, he's just, he's been anti-LeBron for a really good chunk of his career, and I think this adds to it. Let's talk some TV. But before we do that, I'm going to do a little read for you. The best teams start with great talent, but finding the right people can be a challenge. It's hard to find. Uh, I'm trying to think. My father used to run a construction deal. Plumbers were slobs. Electricians were not much cleaner, but plumbers always were the sloppiest. The plumbers just thought they didn't have to pick up anything. Framers can be a little rough around the edges, but the real, the real guys that brought it home were the finished carpenters. Love those guys. Respect finished carpenters probably more than anybody on a job site. But it's always hard to kind of put that team together. So when it comes to hiring for your business, ZipRecruiter can help you find the right candidates for your team fast from healthcare and manufacturing to business services and more. And now you can try ZipRecruiter for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash 
Ryan Show. That's R-Y-E-N Show. ZipRecruiter sends your job to over 100 top job sites, but they don't stop there. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right skills and experience for your job and actively invites them to apply. You can even add screening questions to your job listing so you can filter candidates and focus on the best ones. And right now, to try ZipRecruiter for free, my listeners can go to ZipRecruiter.com slash Ryan Show. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash R-Y-E-N Show. ZipRecruiter.com slash Ryan Show. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Okay, here's Bill Lawrence. Well, Bill, a lot of people know your resume and you know it's it's been uh, nice to get you on the, the podcast. And you and I have a mutual friend in Bill Callahan, who I, I know you've known for a really long time and how excited we all were. We're kids that grew up with Bill being like, hey, he's on with this guy, Bill Lawrence, Scrub, Spin City, the whole thing. So let's... um. Let's kind of start with you and, and how I think anybody that's trying to do something special, you have this thing of, of I know what I want to do, but how can I do this? How did you get your start? Because I'd read you, you'd started by writing a play pretty much right after college. Uh, you know, it's, it's uh, interesting, man. The, uh, it, it's not that interesting, but uh, I, I think nowadays you're very lucky if you have any idea what you want to do at a young age. And I knew I wanted to be in comedy somehow, even as a kid, I didn't want to go to college. I wanted to go try and be a stand-up, and uh, my dad uh, said he invented something called ITI, which is uh, uh, funny. He said, uh, "If you go to college and get a degree, your mom and I will help you as much as we can financially. You know, if you need rent money and stuff. Um, and if you go straight out of high school to LA, you'll have our love and emotional support. <laughs> but it's called <laughs> ITI, which is instant total independence. Um, and uh, I was like, oh, that sounds horrible." So uh, I went to school and didn't come out. I barely got through it and didn't come out here till right after college. I came out to try and be a stand-up, and I was a really shitty stand-up comic. And I got, I got lucky. I got hired, assigned by two managers named George Spiro and Howard West. Uh, uh, if you ever saw that movie Man in the Moon about Andy Kaufman, Danny DeVito played my manager, George Shapiro. And so they managed all comics very early on. My manager, Howard West, who passed away, said, uh, uh, you've got nothing as a, a stand-up comedian. You have no voice, <laughs> which was true, man. It was horrible, right? Uh, but he's like, how bad, uh, how bad is it when you, how bad is it? Is like, no, look, you kind of had this idea. You have a, an opinion of yourself. You have to have an ego to kind of do this stuff. What was that like to go out there and know this isn't, this isn't it? Uh, you know, you knew it, you, you, uh, the few times that I was ever on a stage that was good enough to get real audience feedback. I didn't get killed. I'd do okay. But when you're out and about in these towns, even if you do okay and you're feeling good about yourself before the end of it, someone will come on that you're like, Holy shit, I can't do that. That person's so interesting. And it just makes you have suddenly laser focus. And you're even enjoying the shit they say. That's not funny. You know, um, I think it was a huge ego blow, but these guys said, uh, right off the bat, probably to hook me in they said but you're very good at writing material so you should stick with that you know and so i immediately ship i don't you know you and i both share a love of, of sports uh, you know I, I i don't have anything to whine about because even though it was a body blow, i think it's like somebody you know that's a quarterback being told they're a receiver you know what i mean for a second you're like no man i'm a quarterback you know and then uh they're like oh you can do that but you're never gonna work again I'm like all right maybe i'm a receiver you know uh and uh that, right, those two dudes uh, changed my life because they got me. Um, you know, I got on really sh uh, kids shows because I didn't go to Harvard. And I wasn't in the Lampoon. 
And so I was, uh, I wrote on, I wrote on and got fired from Boy Meets World and The Nanny and uh, uh, got fired from all my first four jobs. And uh, uh, those guys, I took a play that was kind of like a more adult play and wrote it. Those guys put up the money and produced it and then got me signed with an agency and kind of reinvented me as a writer. It was all bullshit. You know, my, my agent, once I did that play, he's like, yeah, that all those kids shows never happened. You're a playwright who just came out here from New York. I'm like, all right, I'm in, man. And that's okay, kind so of, is, is, is it true that you came up with Topanga, the name for Boy Meets World? Yeah, but, you know, it's also um, uh, uh, me being self-aggrandizing because anybody that ran, the guy that ran the show and the woman, April Kelly and Michael Jacobs, you know, they, he, he had to yes everything, create everything. All he really let me do was in my writer's draft, come up with the name. I stole it from Topanga Canyon, you know, and then used my last name. And then they backfilled that character, you know, because she became a regular. She wasn't a regular in the pilot. Um, but yeah, hell yeah, man, that's mine. <laughs> yeah, that's one of the few things I did before I got shit canned off that show. Yeah, so you mentioned you, you're fired a bunch. And I know some of this is is probably repetitive for you because you've done these interviews right. before. But for the audience that's, you know, a, a very sports-heavy audience and the the legend of you being fired from Friends, how old were you when you were – and it was the first season of Friends? Yeah, I got I got fired. You know, I got fired from uh, – I, I had a good job. I got fired from Boy Meets World when I was 23. And then I got fired from The Nanny, I think, when I was 24. And then I got fired from Friends also when I was 24. So, yeah, this is crushing it. <laughs> <laughs> Why did you keep getting fired? Uh, uh, it's good. You know what? Uh, it's something I talk about now. I teach at this um, showrunner's training program, the Writers Guild Habs, which is pretty cool. It's the only thing they have for kind of young writers that have a pilot and don't know how to do it. Is It took me a long time to learn the lesson that when you write on someone else's show, your job is not to do what you think is funny, your job is to do what they think is funny, right? And any show that works has an audience. Uh, it has, I mean, it has an audience and you have to respect that. So I, I didn't love the show Boy Meets World. It wasn't written for me. You know, I was like a too cool for school guy in my 20s. And uh, I wrote this one episode um, uh, about uh, uh, the first time you're embarrassed, you're, you're embarrassed of your dad as a kid. And the guy that created the show, I handed my draft in the guy that created the show, because he saw a through line, had the main character say like six or seven times this line, I can't believe I hurt my dad. I love him more than anybody in the world, right? Which is a little corny, but in line with the show. And when it was on TV, um, it was back when there were still message machines. I went home and it was like, you have 23 messages. And it was uh, all my clown friends I grew up with going, hey, Bill, I just want to say I can't believe I hurt my dad because I love him more than anybody in the world. It was like one after another giving me shit, you know? Hey, Bill, I'm so sorry you hurt your dad. I mean, didn't you love him more than anyone in the whole world? And uh, uh, I made it clear at work that I didn't think the show was cool and I deserved to get fired, you know? And it's such a great lesson because in retrospect, I know so many people that remember that show as part of their childhood and liked it and stuff. And I was very clear that I thought it was lame and a little kiddish. And so they were correct to unload me. Um, uh, friends was more of me just being a, uh, a, a, a bit of a, you know, bit of a wise ass idiot of, you know, it's really interesting when you're dropped in these writer's room dynamics, because no one tells you, all right, A, your job is to write what someone else that you don't know very well thinks is funny and unlock that cube. And B, 
your job is to be in a social environment that there's certain people that guess what? If uh, they ruffle your feathers, it's fine. And if you rustle their feathers, it's not fine. And uh, um, so friends was that horrible lesson because uh, uh, the co-creator of the show, um, you know, I didn't really mesh with her uh, and she's a lovely and successful woman. And uh, my harsh memory about that show was uh, the other creator of the show, David Crane. He uh, um, um, right after the first season wrapped the rap party, he came up to me and everybody was drinking. He was like, uh, Bill, you did a great job. I think you're going to do great no matter where you end up. I'm like, oh, thanks. I immediately walked out and called my agent. I'm like, I think I'm fired, man. Uh, <laughs> and the worst thing of that was I got fired like right when that show was on the cover of every magazine and there's billboards. Every I was fetal and crying in my apartment. I'm like, oh, dude, I had the cherry gig. And I thought I was killing on it creatively too, you know? And because uh, even the jokes amongst my friends were like, hey, you're like, Maddie Perry's fatter older brother, and then I was his skinnier younger brother, and then fatter older brother again because there's fluctuation back and forth, you know. So uh I think a lot I've seen this a lot now that I do the gig, Ryan, is um it's a lot of really talented people that I think would be great at doing their own thing, but aren't great at doing other people's things, and I was not. I like to ask uh, smart people kind of dumb questions from the outside, right? So can I ask it just a dumb, simple one? And like, what what yeah. happens when you sit down and you're in the writer's room? And that was season one you were on Friends, right? Yeah. you were The first season. So yeah, first you're, season. how much of the story is mapped out for that first season? Like, I understand the pilot and what you have to tell everybody, established, not established. Like, hey, here's season three, here's season five and all of those things. But what what is actually happening in the room as you're going, hey, well, let's have Ross be really a, obsessed with Rachel and all like how much of that is figured out and how much of that just sort of happens as the story develops? Uh, depends on the showrunner. You know, I think, uh, uh, David Crane who created episodes after that, um, um, among other shows has pleasant, which is something that happens on podcasts when you drink Diet Coke and Burr. Um, the, uh, last podcast he ever did, uh, he was very organized and clear about arcs that they wanted to do the first year with Ross and Rachel and would always talk at the, you know, a lot about the big picture of it. And then that show was fascinating, man, because, um, uh, you know, he had the, what he was doing for a whole 22 episode season, 24 episodes, sometimes in his head. And then, uh, in an outline in each story, when you'd come up with the general part of the story, the whole group would outline it. You might go off to write a script that was your script that you had less to do with coming up with a story than somebody else's script, just because it was a group outline. And then once you handed the script in, that was the most insanely joke-driven competitive room I was in because it's you're under this weird time schedule of only having these three nights before it shoots to write jokes and all these young, great joke writers in there and just sitting around until three in the morning trying to come up with pop culture jokes. That was what that job was like for young writers. So the answer is outlines are group. The stories are usually driven by the showrunner. Like on Scrubs, I would start the year off before we had outlined episodes going, we need one arc for the year. We need to talk about each major character's arc and then we'll get to outlining episodes. And then Friends, the weird thing, and it was really trial by fire as you'd be there at three in the morning going, we need a random pop culture joke, you know? And then somebody would be like, uh, guess what? You know, that's their only setup. Guess what? And someone else would go, the, 
the fifth dentist caved and now they're all recommending Trident, you know, and that's that joke in a vacuum is so hard, man. You know, you'd get that. You'd be like, oh, God, all right, let's go to the next one. It's really a joke driven show is tough. But yeah, the, so, the showrunner usually arcs this stuff out. So you're out and I'd heard, were you fired at the Emmys party? Was that what it was? No, it was it was the rap party. I got shit. Rap party. Might have been, okay. wait, it was either the rap party or the um, might have been after the People's Choice Awards. I can't remember. It's whatever. It's whatever's best for the story when I'm telling it. So you mentioned how like it, it dawns on you, but I've also seen interviews with you where you turned into this positive. Like if I'm this young and I'm on this show, and the show's going to take off. Like I guess in in L.A. you still have that on your resume, despite the ending not going the way you wanted to. So you go into Spin City. You know, I don't need a, a I don't want to do show by show here because I'm sure you've done yeah. it all and that's been boring. But like how did how do you transition from okay, wait a minute, what did I do wrong to now I'm gonna start creating shows like Spin City and Scrubs on my own? I got really lucky, man. I'll tell you why it's a cool story is that uh uh I think um Hollywood is oft depicted as a ruthless cutthroat, everybody shits on each other, sketchy business, you know, which uh, there's part of that. But nobody has gotten anywhere without the benevolence of others that believe in you. It's a huge mentoring town. You know what I mean? And uh, uh, and everybody that thinks it's nepotistic, uh, yeah, maybe there's a way in through that shit. You know, I didn't have it. But uh, unless you're, you can actually come up with the work, you disappear pretty quick. You know, this place is littered with people that had easy ways in and never lasted for more than a month. The uh, uh, I got very lucky. That guy, David Crane, who... Um, was one of the people that let me go, took the time to call Gary Goldberg, who, um, uh, uh, this is a good sports Hollywood hybrid because it's for Callahan too, since we have a mutual friend. Uh, he called Gary Perfect. Goldberg, who created Family Ties and Brooklyn Bridge and all these shows and said, Bill Lawrence didn't really mesh with us here, but I think you would really dig him. You know, he's talented. And Gary, um, shit, till like eight years before he passed, uh, ran a basketball game that is now the game that you played in. That game started as Gary Goldberg's game. That's I was, what I heard. Yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, you know, Gary couched it all in terms of sports for me, you know, so he had me come play ball a couple times back when I was young and pre-knee surgery and wrist surgery and could jump and stuff, you know, and, uh, and he liked me in that. You know, he, he still had a poster on his wall, him and Bill Bradley, because they were both freshmen of the year in the Ivy League. Gary played Division One at Brandeis and Bradley played Princeton, right? Yeah, Princeton. Uh, and uh, uh, um, so I went in in a different way through sports, and I very quickly learned what the dynamic is. You know, it's like Gary was your team superstar. You know what I mean? And seeing it in terms of a sports dynamic of not ruffling team chemistry and knowing where your place was, you know, in the pecking order, you know, it made things a lot clearer for me. And he had me, when he brought me over, he had me write on a show called um, Champs. It was DreamWorks' first sitcom. And it was only like 10 episodes. Um, and I worked on that show and it was only on for a second. But we got along so well, I got a call right after. He's like, hey, Mike Fox wants to work with me again, but he wants to work with some young dude that knows how these shows like Friends have multiple storylines and 26 scenes and all that stuff. And so I was literally on my first private jet sitting next to Jeffrey Katzenberg flying to New York City at 25 and uh, uh, all because of Gary. He mentored me like, uh, uh, you know, like the way that everybody wishes the old veteran quarterback that was a gene, you know, a rock star would, would actually mentor the younger ones 
you know, and the reality is that rarely happens, you know? So that's how spin, uh, I call it spin shitty, but that's how it came my way. Um, we created it together. Uh, uh, I thought it was out of the, you know, it was out of benevolence, but I thought it was only out of benevolence. And I remember in spin city, Callahan and I used to joke about this, you know, Gary was like, here's how you run a writer's room. Here's how you edit, you know, and it never dawned on me that he never moved full time to New York, you know, and I thought he's just being <laughs> awesome. He's like, here's how you talk to a director. You got it? I'm like, yeah, no, this is fun. He's like, cool. See you around, man. <laughs> so he but was hey, he was mentoring you? you and also hoping you didn't have to fly across country all the time, too. So Yeah, man. He um, had the he had the greatest gig in the world. He flew in on uh like Thursdays and show night was Fridays, and they'd stay in the weekend and play ball and then fly back to LA Sunday night, you know. So the birth of an idea. So say scrubs, okay? You're is it always something you're thinking about? Does something motivate you? I heard a, a story that that it was about a guy you lived near that was a doctor um, who would, you know, again, correct any of this stuff because I know the research is all over the place with it. But that's OK. I love just the, the inception idea and then how often you'll probably go, OK, that's stupid. I'm just going to stop. And then maybe it doesn't go away or you're glad it went away because it was a bad idea. You know, the, you must have this, man. I think uh, ideas come all the time and. Uh, for me anyways, I'm always looking for reasons not to work. You know, I, I, I couldn't hate writing more. Anybody, by the way, that says they love writing is a sociopath and it's fake. Because it's fun to have written something, right? But to actually sit by yourself and write it, it's, it's like going to the dentist, dude. It's horrible. It's horrible, right? Um, so for me, generally, I think of an idea and then try to find a thousand reasons not to do it. Um, it's an interesting story because you can check it out online right now. The, I went to college with a dude, soccer player, complete screw up, uh, great pal, JD. He's out here in LA now. He's a, um, uh, a doctor. Um, and I used to joke when I was in my 20s with him. I'm like, dude, my big, he had to go back to college. He was such a bad student just to do pre-med again to become a doctor. He decided to become a doctor, right? And I'm like, my biggest <laughs> nightmare, having seen how you behaved in your 20s, would be to wake up in an emergency room with you over my head going, you're going to be fine, man. I'd be like, I am not because you are a horrible person. Um, and uh, I just thought that would be a funny TV show. Um, and he literally gave me all of his intern stories and hooked me up with a bunch of other doctors. And so you know, the thing we we're always proud of, everybody's like, hey, Scrubs is the most realistic. And just because we took actual stories from people that age of how screwy it is on your first day of work to suddenly be in charge of people living and dying. Um, two days ago, he now, he was a heart surgeon, but he tore his rotator cuff in that basketball game that you played in. And so he's having trouble doing surgery the last year. Um, and uh, so he took over uh, he, half as many surgeries. He became the chief administrator for Kaiser's Hospital in Los Feliz in LA. And he is literally running their command center, COVID command center. He's in there seven days a week. And randomly, I'm, I'm, I don't do stuff like this on social media much. He, he never tweets. But he put out, you know, I'm so proud to be working with these doctors and nurses. And I retweeted it and said, hey, I don't talk about it a lot, but this is the real JD. You know, his name is Jade John Doris. I can't think of names. His name is John Doris instead of John Dorian. Um, and he has to change his clothes in his garage at night, you know, trying not to get his kids sick and stuff. And uh, within like four hours is an entertainment weekly store. So uh, and it's in the in the magazines right now and stuff. He is literally a, uh, a medical rock star. But. That's where that idea came from, man. We all used to love our doctors to be very serious and heroic. And I just realized no one had ever done a, a story that I think all of us have if we have a doctor friend that was a, 
you know, a beer drinking college fuck up buddy. I can do language on here, right? Yeah, absolutely. Very yeah. cool. All it's right, adult you know, program. And, all right, good. Nice. So the uh, uh, that was kind of I think what caught some people is like, oh shit, you know, it's a doctor who is really afraid and just wants to hook up with people and and have a light and still have fun and is the most serious person in the world, but still has this kind of undercurrent of uh, uh, doing a job that's really important. So yeah, I just stole his life, dude. You know, I didn't I didn't ever think it would work in a million years, you know, you never think these ideas are going to work. And I, you know, um, uh, it was a cool, cool experience. We've got more of Bill, including some friend stuff, some hoop stories. But if you're like me, you probably start thinking about what to eat for dinner while you're eating lunch. I love food, right? That's why I love using Postmates. They deliver food from every restaurant I can think of right to my door. And I got to tell you, a lot of times, especially when you're gone, and you're on your own and you land and you're coming back from LAX and you get to your place and you go, I've got pickles and hot sauce. Well, that's why I hook it up with Postmates. They have everything I could want in my part of town. And sometimes you get a little adventurous and be like, oh, Postmates is going to deliver from that far away. I'm in. So Postmates doesn't just deliver burgers and sushi. They actually make my life easier with grocery delivery and whatever I can think of delivery as well. Convenience stores, clothing stores, you name it. So no more trips to the store, no more late night fast food runs. I don't even have to worry about where to grab lunch anymore. Just download Postmates on iOS or Android. Find your favorites and get anything you want delivered within the hour. For a limited time, Postmates is giving our listeners $100 of free delivery credit for your first seven days start your free deliveries download the app use the code rr show that's code rr show for 100 of free delivery credit with no minimum purchase for your first seven days when you download the postmates app anything you need anytime you need it postmate it 100 bucks okay 100 bucks boom done deliveries are free so hook it up so how did you pitch it did you just pitch it like, cause that's, that's wanna, outside of the rules, right. You know, of, of what yeah. a doctor show would be. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's funny, man. So I worked, that is a show is a dinosaur because it was a show. This might be a little over people's head, but it was a show that was owned by Disney and ABC, but was on NBC, which never happens anymore because there's consolidation. And uh, without naming names, I'll tell you, I went and pitched it to the people at, uh, uh, ABC, the company that was paying me. Um, and I was, you know, the big pitch was like, Hey, look, it's this tonal tightrope. I want to do a show that's really silly and goofy and has fantasies and big jokes and can seem like a cartoon sometimes. And I want to switch gears immediately and have it have a huge emotional resonance. I think, I think you can do it just using music and shooting in a real hospital and have patients really die and stuff. Um, and as I was pitching it is no bullshit to the, my own bosses uh, at ABC, one of the heads of the company fell asleep during the pitch. He had a chair. There was this heavy silence. So his head kind of, and I hadn't heard anything from him in a while. And I just kind of heard a low rumbling snoring, you know, I'm like, oh, like this is going that well. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I got lucky that the. Uh, oh, that, what, was he older? No, dude. He was just, I just. Was think he, he older at least? No, I think he just had a rough night. Yeah. Oh, okay. It was Hollywood. Well then maybe you know, maybe yeah. maybe he really was gonna like it then, you know? He's like, all right, I relate to these know. guys. You never know. But that's why that's why you know that show ended up going back to ABC at the end is because they owned it. Um but uh when I I had to wait around for like six months and uh uh I pitched it to finally the head of the studio helped me out and I pitched it to NBC and they bought it. But it was a constant fight that people 
it's really interesting, man. Is anything different? I do it the same, so I'm not criticizing you. You, were, you and I were talking a little bit about how we don't love, you know, every, it's easy to kind of stereotype executives as being like, nah, you know, idea killers. And I think it's just anything different makes people apprehensive. You know, uh, I'm, I'm the same way when people pitch me ideas for my own shows. Um, and so it was just a really hard battle to get to do, you know, the path to that show is like, Hey, do it as a sitcom and have it be about Dr. Cox and his, uh, girlfriend. I'm like, no, you know, or do it more as the drama and don't do any of the silly stuff. And so I just got lucky that it worked. You know, I don't know why it resonated for people, but I'm really grateful. I want to stay with that. Cause it is something I sent in the note because I know, you know, as an on-air guy at ESPN and the execs knew we did this, um, if they made a decision and we didn't agree, or if it was something that helped happened to us, impacted us directly, and we're all kind of selfish, especially the, the ego of being on air, you would just go, you know, the execs don't get it. They've never been on air. They don't know what it's all about. Like there is this general feeling of they don't know what they're doing and we're the ones that know what we're doing. And I would always like, even if I believed that at times, I'd go, you know, this can't be possible. It can't be that every single executive is wrong every time about any talent decision. And I'm sure there are some parallels there as writers and on the creative side where you've been on both as the executive and creator side, where you've probably had younger writers reach out to you. You felt like that at some point. So what do you think is accurate about that dynamic? It's a really good question. I've been obsessing about it a long time because I've seen both extremes. You know, I've seen Gary Goldberg was famous for um, you know, the deal for Spin City was that the uh, because a lot of the networks were bidding on it. No network was uh, uh, whoever bought it wasn't allowed to give notes or be involved in casting or be involved in anything. Um, and I, I never registered that until kind of Gary left the show you know, right after the second year. And then the third year I showed up to work and there was like 9,000 executives there. I'm like, what's going on? Why is everybody here? Um, I didn't have the same deal. Uh, and then I've also seen people who are so eager to accept any note, you know, to get their show on television that it's been, we call it being noted to death. You know, it's uh, the end product is nothing about what they really made. They really wanted to make. So here's what I think, man. I think, uh, uh, the problem isn't with making creative decisions. The problem is with, uh, and where the animosity and edge comes from sometimes is from suggesting fixes, okay? Or suggesting something else as if their idea is better than yours, all right? And here's what I mean. Um, oh, the guy that runs my company used to be a person that gave notes for a living. His name's Jeff Ingold. Uh, he, he plays in the basketball game. He's a uh, uh, couldn't be a better guy. And I had grown up the mentor that convinced me not to like notes. And Jeff gave me the first note that drove me insane because you know I, I this is what will happen in a writing thing. You, know, you have ten writers working on a show for months, and then you give in the script, and then some executive will go, uh, "Hey, this moment here, uh, we don't think it works. What if you did this instead?" Like she almost kisses him, but then doesn't. And this happens. And in those dynamics, you've already thought of that a hundred times with 20 other people, you know? And so you're like, no, yeah, we never came up with that with the eight weeks we've been working on this. You know, you want to be an asshole, right? Um, and so Jeff Ingold gave me this note, man. How much would this drive you crazy if you're, you know, writing a show? Is he called up and he goes, uh, hey, you know, I love the show, right? All right. So that's point one. He likes the show. I like anybody that likes the show. I'm like, yeah. And he goes, all right, I got this script. 
at the act break, you really want me to care about these two characters, right? I'm like, yeah. He goes, I didn't give a shit. And, uh, and I, I was like, and then he didn't tell me how to fix it. He didn't tell me how to anything. I got mad at first. And I'm like, yeah, you know, whatever, man, we'll think about it. And, uh, you know, and I went back to everybody else and they were like, oh yeah, it doesn't, you know, we haven't really done the work to make people invest in this yet. So it was a great note because he, he said, uh, like, so imagine if somebody in the, the decision maker's side on your side came at you from a place, instead of saying your feeling of who you should book or what you should do or who you should talk to is wrong. If they said, Hey man, I'm a huge fan of your stuff, Ryan. And what I heard about what you're doing, blah, blah, blah. And for whatever reason, I'm just not excited about it. You know what I mean? Then you would go, Oh, that's weird. You know, you know does that make sense? It does make sense. The, the only pushback I give you is that if they said it the same time, every 20 times they were about to criticize me, then by yeah. like after five or six, I'd go, Oh, okay, here we go. You know, yeah, because it's well, brutal. It, it comes with a B side of empathy for me that I had to take a long time to learn. Anybody that goes into your business, any of these people from Harvard and Cornell business school that end up running studios and networks, they could be on wall street making more money. They're here because they wish that they were doing what we do or they love it so much. And if you understand that, you immediately go, like I became friends with a network president who said, I'm here because I love TV. If someone goes, hey, you're allowed to tell people what you think and what you want to see, but don't do it. He's like, it's insane. Of course you're going to do it. You're here because I love this stuff. So once you get that empathy that these, these men and women that are talking to you that way are talking to you a little bit because they want to do what you do. They love what you're doing. Then it makes it a little clearer and I feel for them a little more. It makes sense. Yeah, that does make sense, but it's, it's still really rare. No, but it's, it's so rare. And that's how I got, you know, after 14 years of ESPN, like there would be, okay, this is the guy I'm going to listen to, you know, yeah. and whether the best was when it was another on air person, you know, and in your notes thing where the guy just said, other than, Hey, I don't care about this. Like that makes you think like, yeah, you're yeah. going to get mad at first. Cause you're creative and you're like, damn it. Like maybe he's right. That's the fear. What if he's right? But that was it. And that was, I remember Tariko was, was the king of that. He would call and say yeah. one thing. He would say one thing to me and then hang up. And that was him mentoring me. And cause Tariko's yeah. as, as good as anybody on the air. And that was, he would just give me that one thing to think about. And that would be something I would tell anybody that has a position of power, has to give advice to people, especially creative people. Just give them the one piece. Even if you have seven things you want to tell them, just tell them that yeah. one because they're going to forget the other ones. You know, or they're yeah. just going to get mad about it and shut down after three or four anyway. 100% right. right. And look, look, we also have technology. It's easy for me to say what I'm saying because there's a leverage shift in both of our businesses, you know, which is you eat shit because you have to and you find your way to navigate it. And I got lucky that, you know, I created a couple shows that made dough and uh, for the companies. And then the, there's a leverage shift that I didn't have to take notes and that made it much easier to actually take them. You know, to me, that was the big crossroads is when you go, Hey, I, I can now be at a place of going, I'm doing whatever I want, what I want to do. And, um, um, the hell with you, you guys and gals, or to go, well, now I can ultimately say, I'm going to go ahead and respectfully do it my way. And it makes it a lot easier to empathize and hear. You must have the same thing on your side of, you know, someone, I mean, I bet you Scott Van Pelt's note life now is different than it was, you know, when he first came on the scene, you know? Yeah, you can't tell that guy anything. 
doesn't, he doesn't want your your tips. He doesn't want yeah, to hear no. about you. You know your interview uh, style stuff. So I mean, he you know that was frustrating because he didn't get me in the beginning because we weren't friends prior to doing the show together. And I'm yeah. like this guy who's like, well, it needs to be done this way or whatever. And he's like, you may be doing radio longer than I have, but I'm I'm Scott fucking Van Pelt. Like I don't <laughs> I don't want your tips. And I'd be like, nope, that was wrong. You know, and I would just say it. And that was part of my own insecurity about so many people at the company not wanting me to be his co-host and me trying to make sure I did the best I could possibly be every day. And then honestly, we were great friends, but we laugh about it. But I, I, sometimes I try to look at me from his perspective going back 10 years and be like, man, he must've been like, Hey, you know, I picked you, right? Asshole. (laughs) Like, I I don't need this. (laughs) <laughs> like who do you well, think way, you I, are? I use him. I use him as a good example. You know, I got this new show coming out on Apple that Scott's actually in. Believe it or not, because uh, it's oh, a no sports kidding. show. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for the and, call. Uh, 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 all right. The, uh, <laughs> I'm just fucking with you. Yeah, I'll, do it. I'll take it. The uh, tough one. So, um, but uh, uh, I think he he struck me not knowing him nearly as well as you do as a guy that chose the what i call the good path is now that he has some leverage and power and probably does not have to answer to anybody um is not does not seem to be rubbing it in people's faces seems to be still a kind good dude yeah yeah no no doubt no doubt okay we do this thing because i'm gonna let you go here it's an honor of craig kilborn who whose triumphant return he came on the podcast recently and i love uh, you five know, he questions played, he played in the ball game a couple times he can actually play. how was he he could he could fill it. He could shoot, but you could tell he was bummed out that he was not who he used to be. You know what I mean? Because he oh uh, yeah, still- too well. Yeah. I know that far too well. <laughs> yeah, and by the way, you know, some nights that game has a bunch of young Division One types in it. You know, and uh, not not still there, but guys in their twenties that played in college. So there was real talent there, but he could fill. He's not afraid to shoot threes. I'll tell you that. That I think he. I think he hosts, he plays the way he hosts, you know, he's just going to get out there and start firing. So (laughs) I always, I always thought five questions was, was funny and not all that like different. Sometimes we don't even get to five. So uh, here we go. You ready? Yeah. I know how the business works because you know, you don't want to name names or you don't want to lead where everybody in inside the business will know, but you can either do the worst pitch to you and it can be a real one. Or I imagine the worst pitches are for people that aren't in the business. I mean, I feel bad when somebody's like, Oh, what are you doing? I'm like, Oh, I'm getting into some of this stuff, have some stuff coming up. And then they start, I'm like, you know, I'm not like, don't even be no, in the sentence. Right. Oh, by the right. way, if this, so, if this turned into a pitch, it would be really fun. No, I'm not. <laughs> I'm not doing that at all. God, no, that's not even where I was going with that. I'm telling people if they come up to me to be like, Oh, that's cool. Like what's going on. And I'm like, don't yeah. talk to me about it. Like I'm still trying to figure out what all the tabs on final draft are. But anyway, um, yeah. what's the worst pitch that you've been given? That you can share right. that you think is a good story. I'll give you um, um, generals, and then look the worst. The worst pitch I've given you, I've got to stay general because I have heard, and it's a cliche, over a thousand times. Where I work is a, is a sitcom, man. It's just a sitcom, you know, and that can be. Where, I'm like, is it? Um, you know, because and by the way, it can be a, a garage, an adoption agency. The best example is uh, uh, a friend who said, uh, my mom works in an adoption agency. It's an amazing, amazing sitcom. I know you hear this a thousand times, but this is a one in a million thing. And I took that person down to the Writers Guild because when people write scripts, they register them to make sure they're not stolen. 
And I think there's been something like 24 adoption agency scripts submitted that year. Do you know what I mean? To be registered. And uh, wow. the hard lesson that I give everybody is your idea is not new. Okay. And uh, it's just not. And uh, um, so the horrible pitch is my workplace is a sitcom. And then the lesson I tell people is two things. You know, one, because then they'll go, oh, some ideas are new. And they'll talk to me about whatever show they're watching at the moment. And then I will point out, no, the idea is not new. TV is about execution. Okay. So if you're doing a project or an idea or a script, um, you could do an adoption agency script that feels new and fresh because of the way you execute it, you know, and uh, uh, 30 Rock. People have done shows about the writer's room of TV shows before. Uh, I could name a bunch of them. Um, and 30 Rock was great and funny and a joke-driven show and felt original and new. I loved it. You know what I mean? Uh, the idea wasn't new. The execution was very new. Um, uh, so, look, that's number one is ideas are cheap. If you want to work in the idea business, it used to be go to screenplays, um, you know, because it's like, oh, it's a huge hook in a movie. Great. TV is uh, here's a world that can last for 50 or 100 episodes, and I'm going to execute it in a way that has a specific and original voice. Okay. So, A. B, the answer to that is, I'm like, I want you to understand what you're doing when you come tell somebody that's a writer that you have a sitcom. Here's what you're doing. I'll just translate it. This is why it's good if you're creating stuff that you're writing and putting together. Somebody comes to me and they go, I got an idea. I'll say, are you a writer? And they'll go, no, no, but my office should be a sitcom. I'm like, all right, so here's what you're asking. I've worked my whole life to get to a place that I'm allowed to do my own ideas and own all of them. And what you're doing is saying, hey, I'm going to give you my idea that you're going to do and you're going to do all the work and only own half of it. Is that exciting? <laughs> <laughs> and by the way, unless you're a weirdo that goes so cool that you came along. Cause even though I do this for a living, I don't have any ideas. I don't have any. <laughs> no, that, that's what I did. One of the first script books I think I bought, you know, years and years ago, when you go through the phase of, I'm going to buy these books. And then it's like, yeah. hey, are you ever going to read them though? Because that was a fun day at Barnes and Noble. Yeah, and yeah, right. You go through them. And I remember one of the first ones was like, would you ever sit down and start playing a trumpet? <laughs> like you just go, I'll figure this out by yeah. the end of the day. And yeah. you, know, you wouldn't. And once you kind of thought of it that way, you're like, all right, this is going to take a little bit more time. Okay. Uh, I've got a couple, <laughs> I've got a couple more. Keep going, Let me go keep going. quick on these. Who's the all right? Who's the most famous person? So we're looking for peak fame that yeah. also had the best basketball skills that is played in this legendary game. So it can't oh, be somebody wow. who actually played, you know, in even in college. Give me the most famous guy that showed up that had the best game. Uh, you know, I can't go. You know, it, 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 the cheat is uh, Paul Shirley played for a while because he he was uh, um, in the NBA. For ten years, right? He's the guy that wrote years. the book about, "Hey, can I keep my jersey?" For those that don't, yeah, know. because that's a cheat. He's an NBA player and he played for a while. And there's a guy that played for USC that could guard him. A good one is another former athlete, and I would have put two and two together. Derek Mays still plays in the game. Fantastic NFL receiver, Notre Dame guy. If you put the pieces together, dude that grew up in Indiana, of course he's going to have just a you know a, a rock solid uh, basketball game. Um, Kilborn, pretty good shooter. Um, uh, surprising. Uh, uh, there's a, uh, a there's a lot of good guys. You know, the Donald Faison from Scrubs. Um, 
plays like an actor, is look at me, look at me, shoots whenever he touches it. But he's very, he's very good, but humbled. And he was only tolerable because he was humbled by his older brother played Division One basketball and played in the game for a while. But so I'd have to say, I'd have to cheat, though, and say uh, Paul Shirley for the win, man. Okay. NBA um, guy. Yeah, I mean, I would hope so, too. He's pretty big, yeah, isn't he? By the way, here's the funny nightmare. I'll do a quick story to make you laugh. Paul Shirley, not many people know this, um, worked his way up to like being in the rotation. And uh, 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 his last year is either on the Suns or the Bulls. I think Bulls, he got in the rotation. And in a game of mop-up time, the coach is like, is anybody going to fucking play some defense out there? And Paul went out and Austin Crozier was coming down full speed. They were already up by 19. And Paul's like, I'm going to stand here like I'm going to take a charge so the coach doesn't get mad and Crozier's going to go around me. And Austin Crozier went right into him and uh, lacerated his spleen and broke uh, his uh, 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 broke a fracture in his sternum and essentially knocked Paul out of the league for a year and he never really made it back. And our game, except for the night where you were there, is usually at crossroads. And the one big retired jersey that besides Baron Davis, it's huge, is Austin Crozier's. So Paul, oh, Shirley, wow. <laughs> Paul Shirley came to play. And every night he would start up by looking up at that. He's like, oh, fuck that guy. Fuck that guy. <laughs> okay, I'll I'll do one more. Best, because the friend story, I want to pause. Give me your best friend story, whether it's about any of the people, um, just the thing that, that you love the most. You know, that one where it's a couple beers and somebody asks you the question I just asked you. All right, sure. It was, what's your favorite joke that's nobody else's favorite joke? And... Um, uh, I didn't write it, so it's not even self-aggrandizing. A, a dude named Jeff Astroff wrote it, and you can find it in an old Friends episode. And it was not the showrunner David Crane's type of joke, but it was like three or four in the morning, and we were all punchy, and uh, they were all looking for that annoying monkey. Remember that monkey on the show? Uh, yeah. Everybody thought that monkey was adorable, and whenever you were on stage, the monkey was there. It Marcel. Yeah, it would shit into its hand and then just throw it at you. You're on stage. It was a horrible, horrible creature, man. You know, and uh, the, the parallel <laughs> of that thing, just heaving its own shit at people and everybody in America loving it made me laugh. But uh, uh, the joke <laughs> was uh, uh, late night. There's an episode that they lost the monkey and they were going everywhere to try and find the monkeys. And um, we needed a joke for Matt LeBlanc, for Joey, to knock on the door. And uh, Jeff Astroff pitched. Um he knocks on a random door and asks if they've seen the monkey and a beautiful girl answers. And he should just say, look, I'm sorry to bother you in the middle of the night, but uh, we lost a pet. It's a monkey. It's about this big. It answers to the name Marcel. So if we could just get a couple of naked pictures of you, that would be great. And uh, <laughs> uh, it's not that great. <laughs> yeah, it's but you know what? It's, it's For that show, though, and then for it to zag like that, you know, 90s? You know, this well, is it's a different time, but what made me laugh is the showrunner. It was one of those things of all these events hitting. It was late. The showrunner had been beaten down, and Jeff Astroff would not let it go. And he's like, "You got to do it. You got it." And the show, the joke didn't kill. The fact that it's on TV and I still see it in reruns takes me back to a time of like how that's people don't understand that's only on television because it was three thirty a.m. And because the guy that came up with it wouldn't leave the showrunner alone until he said he'd put it in the show. Otherwise, we'd never get to go home. And now it's there in perpetuity. What a great way to close that out. Uh, Bill Lawrence, thanks so much for your time. And then are you more on Instagram or uh, or Twitter? Because I know you don't tweet a lot. 
I'm barely on Instagram. I'm, I'm V Doozer on Twitter. I'm, I think I'm hysterical. V Doozer. That's two O's, and it's it's a play on the middle name. Hey man, thanks again. Hang in there throughout all this, and uh, you know, let me know if I can ever return the favor. All right. Yeah, and uh, hey, get yourself back out there in that game as soon as we come out on the other side of this. All right. Absolutely. I'll see you soon. See you, Ron. I hope you enjoyed that. I know that I like to do anything where we can try to give you guys maybe a window into how other industries work. And that's something that's always uh, been interesting to me as well. So enjoy the rest of the week. Bill and I are going to redraft the 2000 NBA draft for Sunday's pod, I think. Is that the plan, Kyle? I know we're doing the next one he and I are doing is 2000. We were looking through the history of it and how it stacks up. It is so comically bad. Like it's even worse when I think about what it is, we were looking at some of the numbers of how many people made all-star teams, how many all NBA selections there were from an entire class. It's pathetic. It's so bad. I I mean, we knew it was bad, but I couldn't believe it when I was actually reading through some of the research on it. So uh, that's Bill and I. And then of course, you know, we're going to go because we went forever on Sunday and uh, we'll we'll just keep the stuff rolling. So we really appreciate you listening and, and getting through your day any way you can stay safe. 